Hey everyone, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast exploring the mystery of consciousness and life's place in the universe. Adrian here. Today I'm very excited to sit down with an incredibly inspiring person who's been very influential to me, the cosmologist Brian Swim. He was one of my professors at university at the California Institute of Integral Studies where he teaches in the Department of Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness. So I had many classes with Brian, and I really feel that his ideas about the universe and about consciousness came at a time for me when they were exactly what I needed to hear, and steered me in a direction that I'm very grateful for. Uh, So I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Brian, talking about the evolution of consciousness, the developmental nature of the universe, and the value of seeing ourselves as a part of this amazing cosmic unfolding. Just before we begin, keep in mind that Waking Cosmos is completely free. You can find this podcast in all of the usual places, such as Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and you can really help us out by liking, giving us a nice rating, wherever you happen to be listening to this. All of that is very much appreciated and helps with our visibility. So if you can take 10 seconds to rate the podcast, uh, that would be awesome. If you would like to go above and beyond and become one of those amazing folks who directly support Waking Cosmos on Patreon, uh, you can go over to patreon.com slash wakingcosmos and subscribe for any amount that you feel comfortable with. And that'll also get you early access to every episode and other ways to participate. I'm enormously grateful to those of you who do do that. There's absolutely no obligation to, of course, but it is how the podcast can exist. So thank you very much to those of you who do do that. And that is patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. All right, enough of that. Without further delay, I give you the wise and brilliant mind of Dr. Brian Swim. Brian, good to be talking with you. How are you? Very good. Thanks for inviting me, Adrian. You're welcome. It's uh, been a little while since I had classes with you, but I have to say, I I think about your ideas a great deal. And I do feel really lucky to have come into contact with you and your work when I did. So yeah, really been looking forward to this conversation and hopefully introducing a few new people to your ideas. Well, great, Adrian. um, It really means a lot to me that some of my ideas were influential with you. That's really deeply satisfying. Thanks for telling me. Sure. So perhaps a good place to start is with this concept of the new story that you talk about and how our gaining a deeper understanding of the universe can give us a deeper understanding of who we are and our place in existence. So Brian, maybe we can start here. What is the new story of the universe as you see it? And how does it differ, say, from a typical popular science view of cosmology? So the phrase, the new story, really comes from Thomas Berry, and it was just his quick way of referring to the uh, discovery that the universe is evolving. I just like to think of, of the difference between a cosmos and a cosmogenesis. And I think that is, that's the fundamental kind of shocking discovery uh, that modern science has made. Here's the sequence in my own mind. In ancient times, uh, the humans had the idea that they lived on a solid land and that the stars circled around them at night. 
and the sun around them during the day. So that was that was a common understanding found in different places around the, the planet. And then as the big moment everybody knows about is Copernicus discovering this amazing fact that we were living on a on a spherical planet that was going around the sun. That's a stupendous insight, but that isn't yet a movement into the new story. Just to give some dates, that's 1543. And then the idea was that, okay, the sun is stable and the earth is going around it. Then um, in 1920, Harlow Shapley discovered that the sun is actually moving around the Milky Way galaxy. So that was an extension of this, this idea that we're involved with movement. The Earth is moving. In fact, the whole solar system is moving. But then we came to the crucial moment, uh, 1928, just eight years after Shapley. The crucial moment was when Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe itself was expanding. The way the universe is expanding shows that all of it came from a, a place in the past that was very, very small and simple. And so this is the crucial insight into the new story, that in the past, around 14 billion years ago, there was no structure. It was just elementary particles, a form of plasma. And then over 14 billion years, stars, galaxies, planets, life emerged. You see, that's a movement too. It's a movement from simplicity to complexity. And so suddenly, that's the new story. The new story is realizing that we find ourselves inside of a developing reality. Not a, a fixed reality that we would call a cosmos, but an unfolding and developing and complexifying cosmos that we call a cosmogenesis. That is the... Uh, the amazing discovery of what Thomas Berry called the new story. Yeah, that's really beautifully put. And as you say, what's new about this story is that it's coming together very recently. And people, I think, don't often realize that it was only 100 years ago that we thought there was only one galaxy. And of course, now we know there are trillions of other galaxies. And so many of these discoveries, including that the universe is itself a developing process, uh, with perhaps even some kind of a beginning, it's very new information that we're still in the process of internalizing. Yeah. One of the, one of the key people in this endeavor is uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. When he was reflecting on the challenge that you just identified of um, taking in this information and internalizing it so that we actually live in the universe... At one point, Teilhard muses that it might take a million years to do this. One aspect is that Copernicus discovered that we're on a ball that's spinning. And yet we still say sunrise. And we still talk about how, well, the sun will go down at such and such a time. So that embedded in our language is the, the former way of living in the cosmos, thinking that the sun goes around it. So it was just a little tiny example, but on, on so many different aspects, we have to, as you say, internalize this new and deep insight. Yeah, I do really like this idea of the, the future paradigm of, of human life 
coming in the form of a new story and a new description of our, our place in reality and that there is a, a telling of cosmology and evolution which can reconnect us with a larger sense of meaning that arguably the modern mind has lost contact with. But at the same time, the, the scientific story of the universe, from at least one perspective, is kind of a depressing materialism in which humans are entirely irrelevant to the cosmic process. Life is just a product of chance and accident, and there's really no meaning to any of it. So, Brian, how do you respond to these apparent bleak facts of reality? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. The, uh, it, it really boggles the mind, the way in which we have this amazing knowledge of the universe. And I mean, it's so many times more m magical than, than the universe is talked about in any of the religious myths. It goes beyond that. It, it, but 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 as you point out, the 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 tragedy is the way in which we have a mental state of reductionism. We think we can get to the reality of things by reducing them down to the parts. And I do think that this is a form of consciousness that has to be regarded as pathological. So I, I would say the modern proclivity towards materialism and reductionism is even worse than racism. It's worse than militarism because so many of those partial views are related to reductionism. <laughs> I developed a, like an exercise to help me escape reductionism. Okay, so here it is. You, um, you go out at night and you, you look at the stars, and you, you take in that those stars uh, created every atom of your body, uh, the phosphorus, the carbon, the nitrogen, not those particular stars, but stars very much like them. So the stars created the phosphorus that is used throughout our body. And now these atoms are in a form that can take in the stars. We take in that we are the further development of stars reflecting on stars. But I want to take it one step further, okay? As you're looking out at the stars, those stars you're looking at are involved in the construction of these atoms. So that process, that whole process, what led to you, standing there. When you look out, you are seeing the very process that is looking. That includes the consciousness you're using to become aware of this. You're looking at the process that is doing the looking. I just think that, that we have to develop ways of escaping from the pathology of materialism, the pathology of reductionism. Yeah. It's almost as if in some ways the, the scientific story has for a long time been almost focused on highlighting our insignificance. You know, we're not the center of the universe, we're peripheral, our lives are meaningless in a cosmic sense. And perhaps historically this is sort of a reaction to religious forces, but 
now I think there are numerous ways in which the cosmic story that we now have actually places huge significance on us. You know, we and other life in some ways are the most novel phenomena in the universe that we know of. And as, yeah. you, as you said, we're also conscious. So in a real way, we're a, the part of the universe that has somehow become aware of its own existence. And in our case, aware that we're actually aware. And that, I think, really kind of flips the narrative on this decentering mechanistic perspective and really justifies a retelling of, of the universe's story as we understand it. I completely agree. I just think that one of the most significant activities that, that we can be involved in is this telling of the story in, in all different forms and for all different levels. It is, without question, the most massive shift in our understanding of the universe ever. So naturally, it's going to take us time to really understand it and to, and to integrate it with our economic systems you know, in our religious traditions, it's going to take a huge amount of creative energy to do that. It's such a thrilling work to be involved in, especially for philosophically minded and uh, artistically talented people. You know, mm. and another thing, just to pick up on the first thing you were saying, that that science early on, it seemed to focus on decentering the human. So no longer are we at the center of the universe and, and so forth. That is such a crucial action. We needed to free ourselves from these religious ideologies that were so puny in comparison to what the, the truth was. How fantastic that, that scientists that had, had utterly no sense of what they were going to discover ended up with a story that is, has greater spiritual significance than any of the traditional religious stories. And that's a, a bold statement on my part, but I, I don't know, I think it's true. Uh, one thing to, to point out, which I, I think distinguishes this perspective of cosmology is that you're not coming under any kind of illusion that we're actually close to a complete understanding of everything. And while science does and can provide this very amazing story of the universe and our evolution, you're not in any way suggesting that our understanding of the universe is nearly complete. And, you know, I agree. I think in all likelihood, what remains to be discovered about the nature of reality is unimaginably vast. And, you know, just for one thing, yeah. you know, we really don't know what is actually giving reality to any of these discovered equations and actually realizing the laws of physics. So yeah, we live in an enormous mystery. Uh, and I think the narrative that you're conveying very much recognizes that it's scientifically literate in, in a very important way, but it's very far from being a form of scientism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, scientism. Uh, I should have used that word as well with reductionism and materialism. They all hook together. Uh, sometimes I, I try to think of how much how much of uh, the universe have we discovered? Now, what, what do we know? Like, are we at like 50% of what's out there? <laughs> and, uh, obviously, it's an unanswerable question, you know, because what all this vast knowledge that we've come up with might be one millionth of one trillionth of what is actually taking place. I sometimes think we have this, 
this image comes from Carl Jung, but I, I really like it. That our our knowledge is like a um, it's like a tiny little candle that we're protecting from in the middle of the of a in, in midnight in a storm. There all the, there's all this wind swirling around us. We just have this little tiny candle, and it 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 can be snuffed out. And it's so tiny, but it's so precious. And so that's how I think of scientific knowledge. It's so fantastic, and yet it may be just the tiniest slice of what we will know in the future. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of picturing it. Um, so I think a lot of your really interesting insights come out of really looking at the particular cosmological moment that we now occupy. And something very profound that you've pointed out about this cosmic moment is that in us, and perhaps elsewhere in the universe as well, the evolutionary process itself has reached a stage where it actually becomes conscious of itself. And something very significant about that is that evolution itself uh, now becomes essentially steered by the beings that it created. And so in self-conscious beings, evolution enters this new phase where it becomes distinctly purposive and even teleological. So Brian, maybe you could say something about the significance of that and what it means for us. Yeah, it is shocking uh, what has taken place. One way I like to dwell on it is to say that life uh, evolved for three and a half billion years and, you know, brought forth amazing things. And then this one little tiny species shows up and becomes aware that it is aware. And that tiny little difference, as you say, has actually transformed the evolutionary dynamics of our planet. We have a significance that is at least on a par with three and a half billion years of life. If we can just take that in, we have a much better chance of living in a way that is congruent and even enhancing with the rest of the Earth community. I mean, you know, we have these different views that what does it mean to be human? You know, the human's a rational animal, the, um, the symbol maker, the tool maker, and all of these. But to begin to realize that, that we, are, we are the species in which the universe becomes aware of itself, it begins to suggest a, a cosmic role. We don't even know how far out this will go. Some people talk about how the um, coming out of Earth will be the power to uh, spread life throughout the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, some people speak, speculate that, that actually the human species, that our role is to awaken the entire Milky Way so that it becomes something like a, a sentient being. I mean, these are wild ideas, but I think we need to speculate on what our cosmological significance is, because when we try to force the human being into a, into a tiny little space, what, what ensues is warfare and the materialism that we have. I think that even though we, we don't know the full significance of the human, I think on one level, we can say that we are in the process right now of creating an earth system that is an envelope of intelligence in which 
life will continue to evolve in a very different way because the context of evolution is no longer natural selection and genetic mutation in the wild. The context of evolution now is interaction within this envelope, this intelligent envelope that has been created by the human presence. Here in the United States, there is this amazing collapse of meaning. More people are dying of opioids every year than in the entire Vietnam War. But I, and I think this relates exactly to your question. Is it possible that a new meaning is surfacing now that we begin to see our role as being much, much larger than something that is defined by a corporation or a nation state or a religion? Yeah. yeah, this idea of evolution becoming conscious of itself and in that becoming self-directed, certainly it's a very significant moment in the evolution of life on this planet and maybe the universe at large in some sense. But I think in, albeit perhaps a less explicit way, even before the evolution of self-conscious life, I don't know that we can necessarily rule out that there was already something like purpose or meaning embedded in in the universe's evolutionary process. And I know that that can seem like kind of a naive perspective on evolution, but I say this because I know that there are philosophers and and thinkers who, even recently, uh, who clearly do understand science and, and evolution, but have argued, nonetheless, that, for example, the emergence of life could be uh, an important part of the universe's development and was in some sense driven to producing. Uh, So the philosopher Thomas Nagel, for example, has argued that through conscious life, the universe is gradually waking up and that this is a necessary development which the universe required in some mysterious way. And uh, another thinker, the, uh, the physicist Paul Davies, Uh, has suggested that the universe may have needed to become what he calls completely self-known and that this is a a kind of metaphysical necessity that simply entails the evolution of of conscious beings. So I wonder, Brian, is that a view that you can sympathize with on any level? Yeah, completely. I I think Nagel's work is is fantastic. I mean, he's just, he's, he's operating from a completely rational point of view. And he's, he's simply pointing out that neo-Darwinian synthesis is no longer adequate. We have to go beyond that. He doesn't know how, but he's just saying it's apparent that our understanding is, is uh, too partial to be uh, maintained as the truth. So I think Thomas Nagel's work is, is fantastic. And uh, Paul Davies as well. I, the idea that the universe has a need uh, to become aware is is brilliant. I would join in with them. And, um, well, no, I'm, I'm going to add one, another person on. Terence Deacon. Terence Deacon is um, evolutionary biologist and anthropologist at, at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, his research program, he's a, also a brain scientist, his research program is to show that purpose and value are objective facts. They are ontologically real from the beginning of life, from the beginning of life, so that this notion that there isn't 
there isn't purpose and then, and there isn't a telos until the human comes along. He is, he is challenging using only the principles of, of thermodynamics and uh, complexity science. So his, the book I would recommend is Incomplete Nature. What we're seeing is, is a massive shift in the scientific paradigm from the realm of the mechanistic paradigm into, and then what, what words we use for the next one is determined largely by a person's orientation. But the integral paradigm, the, the uh, complexity paradigm, the consciousness paradigm, we are definitely moving out of, of one and into another. The way I like to think about it is this. If you go back to the early universe and you look at the dynamics that are taking place, there's gravity, there's electromagnetism, there's the strong nuclear, and there's the weak nuclear. If you look at those dynamics, go back 13.5 billion years, if you look at the dynamics taking place in the early universe, it is certain that there will be trillions of stars and galaxies already in the interactions then it is certain that these will come forth so i how do you interpret that say what we didn't know about this until recently because we didn't even know the universe was developing but now we know that the universe was absolutely going to bring forth trillions of stars and galaxies even when it was in the form of elementary particles okay how do you interpret that I would say the mainstream way of interpreting that statement is called the multiverse. I'm sure many of your listeners are all up to speed on this, but the multiverse is the assumption that there are a huge number of so-called pocket universes, maybe even an infinite number. And all of these are randomly distributed in terms of the strength of the interactions so that yeah, of course, if you have an infinite number of universes, one or two of them are going to come forth with life. That's the orientation of the multiverse. Other scientists are offended by this notion because we have utterly no empirical truth, no empirical facts about the existence of even one other universe. What is driving this theory? It is the conviction that the universe does not have value and purpose, and direction. So in order to preserve that ideological assumption, some scientists are happy to imagine an infinite number of undetectable universes. I just think that another way to interpret what, what seems to me far more reasonable is to say that the universe from the beginning was permeated with self-organizing dynamics from the start. And so the universe was aiming at bringing forth all of this structure. That at least is what I find uh, compelling, that we live in a universe that in some, in some way knows. It, it's hard to understand what that might mean when you're talking about a universe knowing how to do something. But I, that's how I think. The universe knew how to create galaxies. The universe knew how to create stars. And it set about it right then, right from the beginning. And we, we live in the middle of that, that form of intelligence. 
So that might be a longish answer, but um, I, I just I think this question of purpose and value that, that is picked up on by Thomas Nagel and Paul Davies and others is crucial. And I, I think it's um, where we're headed is a paradigm where purpose and meaning are fundamental to the universe. So you've alluded to the various ways in which the universe seems extraordinarily almost fine-tuned to allow for life to eventually evolve. And uh, there's a quote from Freeman Dyson, I remember, that you used where he says, it's almost as if the universe knew we were coming. And as you've already talked about, the sort of standard mainstream response to that very profound mystery is uh, to infer the existence of a multiverse and that there must be trillions of other universes, uh, most of which are entirely unsuitable for life. And, and this uh, idea of a multiverse is how we can sort of factor out how special the universe seems to be. On the one hand, I think it's at least possible that there is a, a multiverse. I mean, almost everything uh, turns out to be much bigger than we first expected. And so, you know, why not existence contain many universes and many kinds of reality? You know, we used to think there was only one galaxy, but now we know there are trillions. Um, but as you say, it does seem as if, you know, the existence of the multiverse is maybe entirely unprovable and perhaps forever. And, you know, I think if our first step in trying to understand why the universe is the way that it is, is to infer the existence of a massive unknowable exterior that we've got no direct access to or evidence of, um, then we could be missing out on an understanding of the true reasons for why the universe is like it is. And I think given just how conspicuously the universe is so elegantly suited for life, I think we should at the very least consider seriously that life is an important part of the universe and, and maybe consciousness and intelligence play a role as well. That, I think, at least should be a serious consideration that we keep on the table. And not to do so seems purely ideological. Yeah, these kinds of questions, right now, they are rooted in our metaphysical assumptions. Like you say, there could be a large number of other universes. There could be. And there could be just one universe. We, we just don't know. And we can't resolve uh, the issue with facts. So we're thrown back on our fundamental, like I say, metaphysical assumptions. We can still reflect on this situation and participate in the choice of our assumptions. I don't think it's the case that it doesn't matter. I think it matters tremendously what assumptions we choose. Let me, let me give you a, one example. This is a, the last book that Stephen Hawking was involved in. He goes through the multiverse idea, and he thinks he's explaining the elegance of the universe. And in my view, he's explaining away the elegance. And he even admits it on one level. He says, that, well, uh, some universe somewhere would develop life. He makes a statement, so you see that there's nothing marvelous about our universe. And I, I thought, wow, that is so interesting. He starts off with the assumption that our universe isn't marvelous. And then he uses that to prove that our universe isn't marvelous. 
if we convince ourselves that things don't have a deep value, we're vulnerable to um, a misuse of, of things and people. If we regard the forests of the world as nothing marvelous about them, it's just um, a bunch of atoms in a certain form, then we can deconstruct the forest and build anything we want. My own metaphysical assumption is that we live in a universe that is, that is intrinsically valuable, intrinsically involved in something of very deep significance and importance, even if we can't see it. So it does come down to a question of metaphysical assumptions, and that is relying upon a form of mind that we call intuition. It becomes personal. <laughs> we cannot be uh, convinced into one particular metaphysical orientation by the facts, because the, these assumptions are in the interpretation of the facts. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that if we do consider that there could be uh, a kind of cosmic imperative towards life or complexity or anything really, and that this outcome in some way relates to its value, then it's worth pointing out that consciousness is how value is realized in the universe. You know, everything of value is in some sense occurring in consciousness. And so I think if there is a kind of cosmic imperative that you're talking about, then you can imagine that conscious life would need to be a part of that to actually realize that value. Yeah, yeah. We humans, we have this, we have a sense of what's important and what's valuable and we're drawn to it. We're, we devote our lives to it. And we, you know, we are the universe striving to move potency um, into actuality. That's one of the great thrills of being a human being is to realize that we are carrying out a work that is very similar to a, a galaxy creating stars. We're at the cutting edge of 14 billion years of creative evolution. Yeah. And, you know, whatever is the case ultimately about consciousness and exactly how it fits into the universe, I think just the fact that the universe supports conscious experiences However, that is the case. It's just this amazing fact about reality that that is even possible. Yeah. And, you know, whether or not we think about consciousness in terms of materialism or even being something much deeper, it's just amazing that reality has the, the necessary subtlety to support it. Yeah. So I do think that consciousness and its value realizing nature should be relevant to our thinking about the basic character of the universe and what it is on some level. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the, the greatest mystery. I I was <clears throat> I was reflecting on how uh certain people uh interest us. You know, for for whatever reason, we we just we just sort of you can be in a group of people and the people are talking and certain people kind of interest us, you know. And then we want to we want to go over there and and have a conversation, uh, get to know him or her, and um, and so it takes it takes some skill in order to establish that because you have to be interesting to them and then you start a conversation and then you know maybe it'll go somewhere and and um, so a highly conscious person is is able to do that really well. 
and people that are out to lunch, I mean, they just can't pull it off, you know? So I, I came up with the idea of um, that consciousness is the ability to enter into relationship. Mm. <laughs> that was my definition. And, and I thought, see, the, the, the thing is, electrons and protons, they can enter into relationship. The standard way of thinking about this during the modern period of science is that there's a law that determines the movement of the electron and the proton. And, but what's the nature of the law? That's the question I want to raise here in terms of consciousness. With Newton and all classical scientists, the law was, was something that was set. It was ex external to the universe, maybe even prior to the universe. For Newton, the law was created by God. It was an expression of God. But with our discoveries of what's going on at the quantum realm, our understanding of law uh, is changing. And the, one of the people that is very impressive on this is uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, who has meant a lot to a number of uh, contemporary scientists like Rupert Sheldrake. Peirce thought that there aren't any external laws at all, that all of the, the so-called laws are regularities the particles themselves establish. And so he calls these habits. And I love that. In that sense, you see, <clears throat> it puts the agency uh, back on the entity so that electrons and protons can enter into relationship that we call, a, call an atom. They can do that because of a long process of experimentation. It's like somebody that goes to the bars a lot and, and, and finally learns to establish a conversation with someone and, and you know, have a good time. And then certain habits would form and because they're, they're workable. I sort of love that um, way of, of, of thinking that, that consciousness, this ability to, to enter into relationship is, is something that the entire spectrum of existence manifests. I like that. It's, it's an interesting idea that the kind of fundamental ability of particles to interact with each other, to know of each other's existence, uh, and to, in order to be able to, you know, interact and combine and bounce off each other and whatever else particles do, that that kind of fundamental knowledge of each other's existence is, is actually the basic precursor to a richer kind of consciousness that evolution has developed in us. It's, yeah. Let me highlight that phrase. Let me highlight that phrase. To know of each other's existence. I love that. I love that. Yes. <laughs> so I think in, in the same way that the, the mechanistic or the reductionist view can seem to produce quite a, a depressing view about, about the universe, Life as well has, has become somewhat disenchanted by that perspective. And for example, I think of the, the selfish gene and life being viewed as just this battle for resources and dominance and really defined by this brutal competition. Um, but I know that wouldn't be your view about life. So I wonder how do you respond to that kind of reductionist, selfish gene interpretation of, of life and evolution that... We sometimes hear from more mainstream science communicators. 
Yeah, I think, um, well, of course, uh, <laughs> Richard Dawkins is, is the one that came up with that. And, um, I, you know, even he realized it was um, <clears throat> a lopsided view and he's backed away from it a good deal. So I, I do think that has died out, not because of um, Dawkins, but because of these these powerful insights that other biologists have come up with in terms of cooperation, mm. just cooperation. I mean, one of the first uh, major moves was Lynn Margulis and her realization that some cells actually entered inside of other cells and established a community. We now call these uh, eukaryotes, which enabled animals and plants to come forth this eukaryote uh, with a, a nucleus. So the nucleus is a formerly independent unicellular organism. So, wow. You want, you want to talk about something significant? Uh, here's something significant. The movement from single-celled organisms to forests and trees and whales and wolves and all of that. I mean, that's significant. And that came about through cooperation, not a, a military battle even what we're discovering now about the human body. So, as I'm sure you know, but it's always fun to reflect on it, the vast majority of the cells of our body, bacterial. So they are independently existing organisms inside of our, our gut. It's not just that we have bacteria in our gut, right? Ten times the number of, of uh, eukaryotic cells. But it's not just that the bacteria are there. Get this. If you look at the plasma in our uh, veins and arteries, 90% of our plasma comes from the microbiome, the bacteria. 90%. We're not just carrying the bacteria. We are a profoundly cooperative community. I mean, look at us. Look what we can do. Well, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> that wouldn't happen if you, if you took away the bacteria from our from our bodies. It would, it would be all over. So these examples of cooperation and synergy, I think, are convincing to many people that cooperation is the fundamental dynamism. And competition is real as well, but it's um, not the dominant one. Yeah, it, it does seem as if life can equally be viewed in terms of a profound cooperation and like you say, if you look in an organism, everything in an organism is in this profound cooperation with everything else. There's you know, trillions of cells in a body and they're all in this incredible interrelationship. And yeah. certainly competition is one level or one form of strategy that life employs. But like you, my sense is that cooperation is perhaps the most uh, encompassing perspective that we can hold when we're thinking about life. Yeah. That, by the way, is, um, is what Charles Sanders Peirce thought as well. Cooperation and harmony what is the fundamental essence of the universe. To stay on this theme of life, one thing that I think comes across clearly in your writing and in, I think, the language that you use is that you view the universe as essentially alive in a real way. And this is an idea that I've spent quite a bit of time exploring as well in my work, uh, especially in my recent film. And 
I think at, at the very least as a metaphor, the universe as an evolving organism is a frame on reality which provides perhaps not only greater explanatory power, but also a greater sense of meaning and also continuity in the natural world. So Brian, I'd love to hear your views about how the universe is essentially alive on some level. Adrian, I I would love to give you that, and I will. But if you could start off and <clears throat> give your own orientation, then I would I would build on that. Is that okay? Sure. Well, I do think of the universe as being alive, and of course that depends on how you define life. And you know, I think if you simply take the standard criteria of a biological organism, which uh, you might find in a scientific textbook, and then try to fit that with the universe, then it is a bit of a stretch to say that the universe is alive in that way. But I think if we have a more archetypal view of an organism as being a self-generating, evolving, holistic process, then yes, I think in that sense, the universe is very much alive. And uh, I think maybe viewing the universe as essentially alive is uh, perhaps not only appropriate, but can allow for a, a deeper understanding of what it is and what it's doing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I would, I would um, affirm all that. And then maybe just to add a, a detail or two, the idea of a machine it took a, a deep hold of um, European and American mentality because it is, a machine is, is amazing. Um, and so the organic view of the world was really replaced by um, a mechanistic point of view. And so then in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, anyone who said the universe is alive, uh, you know, would be seen as romantic, right? But um, I guess for me, I'm one of the things that amazed me was the, was the discovery of the self-regulation of the earth. If you look at the relationship between the sun and the, and the earth, right? Now, uh, a mechanical point of view would see this, the motion as being set by the laws and all the rest of it. But is, is it possible that the solar system is alive? And if that is saying too much, then, then the question is, is the solar system lifelike? I sometimes like to use that word because it's less threatening um, for people. Is it lifelike? Now, the fact I was I was discussing that that was discovered only in the, the middle of the 20th century is that the sun's temperature has increased by uh, over a million degrees during its four and a half billion year existence. And while that was taking place, Earth altered its chemistry in order to remain in that narrow band where biomolecules can function. So it's just a little band. I mean, you get too cold, things become ice. Uh, you get too hot, things unravel or, or you know, burn up. But a dance took place. The sun kept heating up and the earth kept changing itself chemically to enable life to come forth. So... You can say, well, that's just, uh, that's just luck. But another way to look at it is it's, it's like the sun and the earth know, in quotation marks, know 
about each other and about the existence of the other, and they and they know what is required for life to come forth. I just I just find it amazing, you know? And so then like we now humans walking around with this knowledge, this is another way of altering uh, uh, human consciousness is you're walking around reflecting on the way in which the earth and sun entered into this intelligent kind of collaboration, you can begin to realize that your life is an expression of the bond between the sun and the earth. It's not that the earth is, that here we are on earth and we're alive and the sun is out there, it's this, it's a hot ball of gas. No, it is that, that, it, that we're inside of a system that's linked together with an amazing capacity of self-organization, meaning that not only is the earth capable of bringing forth an atmosphere and, 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 and oceans, but life itself comes forth out of this bond. And, and we, we are the offspring of the sun and earth relationship. That has a kind of archetypal um, resonance with ancient myth. And I'm not trying to push the ancient Greek myths on anyone, but I, I do think it is really worth reflecting on the way in which some of the things we've discovered have a resonance with earlier ways of knowing. And it may be that earlier humans had uh, an intuitive capacity to find their way into these uh, insights that we, in a certain sense, are discovering in a more rational, empirical, scientific way. I don't mean to suggest that ours is superior, only that, that we are in, in a continuity with earlier forms of, of humans. So that's how I, I think of the lifelikeness or even the life of the, of the universe and of um, the sun and earth relationship. Yeah. I guess I, I think of our image of, of nature and our image of the universe as it becomes more developed and deeper. We do seem to be moving in this direction of a more organismic perspective. I, I also see that as standing in contrast with this more mechanistic perspective. And, you know, in a way, I think just looking at it from a sort of Western scientific lineage of thought you can see how the archetypal metaphor of the universe has shifted in the past from what initially was a great mind, such as with the ancient Greeks. And then I think at the dawn of science, a shift occurred towards a view of the universe as a great machine. And for me, I sense that there is now a shift to a more organismic perspective, which potentially preserves everything which is powerfully predictive about science and materialism, but is increasingly open to finding ways of integrating these subtler dimensions, which don't really fit with an idea of a machine, but are more predictive elements of an organism, such as mind, interconnectedness, creativity, meaning, and, you know, perhaps even some kind of purpose. And I think and taking this more organismic perspective allows for a richer and perhaps a deeper understanding of the universe and its mysteries. Oh, I, I agree. Let me just um, 
add in, I, I completely agree with, with that sequence. It's very nice, um, from mind to machine to life. When I, was, um, when I was a child, we talked about nine planets. Pluto, of course, has been thrown out, but, but that was it. You know, and so that even though I was fascinated by the stars, I didn't really imagine them as having planets. I, I don't know. I was just happy with the idea that the stars are out there and we are here and we're in a solar system. But now we have, like I mentioned, 50 billion planets in the Milky Way, at least, probably many more. But so the, the image I I had, I just I just throw it out to fit into what you're saying it's like the Milky Way galaxy is like a tree, and the rocky planets with life are like the apples. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> so that all throughout the Milky Way galaxy, all these these apples, you know, are, are blossoming forth with with life. It's just such a different view of the universe that you are, you know, suggesting um, with the organism. So we've we've talked a lot today about taking a kind of more cosmological view of ourselves and how we can see ourselves as being more continuous with the universe and in a sense sharing our identity with it. I wondered if you could say a bit more about why this is a significant view and why in this particular moment in our history this has become an important perspective for us to consider as a species. Yeah. Look at our planet today. We are tearing apart <clears throat> the beauty of a planet, including each other. God, the strife and the divisions on the, our planet are overwhelming. And the tragedy is that uh, we, could, we could be living in a world where all of the, the children are educated deeply and everyone had a home and we would be taken care of with health services. And all of this could happen now without any new inventions. All of this, it's, it's right there before us, but we have this, we're all carved up and fragmented. So I think the great promise of the new story is for us to recognize our unity. It's the most obvious thing. The way uh, Teilhard de Chardin put it, he made the statement that we're not fundamentally religious, we're not fundamentally economic, we're not fundamentally uh, nationalistic, we are fundamentally cosmological. That's our fundamental reality. So that in, in discovering that we live inside a developing universe, we, we realize that all of us have been constructed out of the same star that exploded. We're built out of the atoms that that star gave birth to. And all of us, all of us use lungs and a heart that was first invented by the fish. And all of us have the exact same primate brain that was developed over the last 70 million years. So that the more we learn about the, the evolution of the universe, the more we realize that I'm talking now about, about humans. We're unified on, on such a deep level. This form of, of relationship goes beyond just the humans. We're, we're likewise composed of the same material as the rocks and as the trees. So I, I feel um, confident in saying that a, 
a new form of consciousness is emerging, and it is one that is rooted in a sense of unity. As this really settles in, to use your words, as we really internalize this, we will be able to bring our energies together and build a world that will be so beautiful, it could be called you know, heaven on earth in comparison to what we have now. So that's my, that's my hope for the ongoing discovery and dissemination of the new cosmological story. That's beautiful. Brian, it's been so wonderful to, to speak with you. And I, I just love the way that you talk about the universe and your enthusiasm for these subjects. And I really hope that people listening to this decide to go deeper into your ideas, because I think many of your insights are extremely valuable and mind expanding. And before we say goodbye, is there anywhere in particular that you'd like to direct our listeners to if they're interested to learn more about you and your perspectives? Yes, I would highly recommend Adrian's books. <laughs> Do they know about your books? Uh, I don't think I can recommend my book. <laughs> I can. I can. Yeah, I, um, I really enjoy your, your orientation towards consciousness, towards the universe. I love the three steps from mind to machine to organism. Well, actually, that is something that I talked about in my last documentary, The Living Universe. So people ah. can get that for free by going over to my YouTube channel. But I would certainly recommend that people check out your documentary, Journey of the Universe, which is incredibly mind-expanding and influential to me in many ways. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Adrian. That really means a lot to me. I just, I just love thinking that some of my work has entered into this creative young mind um, <laughs> I know as Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Brian, for sharing so much time with me today. I'll yeah, my I'll make sure there's a link to your documentary in in the description, and yeah, I hope we can do this again sometime. I, I look forward to it, Adrian, very much. All right, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Remember to like, subscribe if you haven't already, give us a nice rating, and uh, maybe even consider checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. And my sincere gratitude to those of you who are already doing that. That is about it from me today. I will see you next time for another episode of Waking Cosmos, exploring the mystery of consciousness and life's place in the universe. But until then, I hope you have a beautiful day.